0: Now, if you take your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4 this morning. Jonah is a unique and special book in the Bible because we learn it from the time when we are just knee-high to a grasshopper coming up through Sunday school of the the preacher that gets swallowed by a whale. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. But more than a story, did you know it's biblically uh, accurate? It's true. Uh, Sometimes I... I hesitate to call Bible uh, events that occur in the Bible, Bible stories. Amen. Because that kind of makes it seem like it's just a story. Amen. Like the three little pigs. Uh-huh. Or, or or one of the other nursery rhymes we teach our children growing up. But when the Bible teaches it, it is truth. Amen. And this happened to this man. And this morning we're going to study uh, a little bit about his life. Now, Uh, Someone once said that if Jonah ended after chapter 3, he would be recognized as one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. Unfortunately, there is a chapter 4. If you wanted to outline the book of Jonah, you could do it very simply. There's four chapters in Jonah. The first chapter could be identified as Jonah passes. God comes to him and says, Jonah... I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against this wickedness because its wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah's like, "Mm, I'm good. Jonah passes the opportunity to follow God and he uh, goes the other way. In fact, he goes twice the distance, the opposite direction to a city called Tarshish. In the New Testament we know of uh, Saul's uh, home place, Saul of Tarshish. Uh, And so, if you were to outline it, chapter 1 would be, Jonah passes. Chapter 2 would be, Jonah prays. Because he's now thrown into the uh, sea, and the Bible says, The Lord prepared a great fish for Jonah. This fish swallows him, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the well. And chapter 2 is his confessional prayer coming to the Lord. And the Bible says, out of the belly of hell I cried unto the Lord. Uh, He he thought it was pretty bad in there. And chapter 2 tells us a little bit about what he went through while he was in the belly of the well. So chapter 1, Jonah passes. Chapter 2, Jonah prays. Chapter 3, Jonah preaches. So chapter 3, he actually obeys God. Just like in chapter 1, God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Did you know that disobedience never changes God's will for the Christian's life? Just because Jonah delayed and just because Jonah hem-hawed a little bit, God's will in chapter 3 for Jonah was the exact same will in chapter 1. Hey Jonah, I need you to go cry in Nineveh. And so chapter 1, Jonah passes. Chapter 2, Jonah prays. Chapter 3, Jonah preaches. And chapter 4 could be dictated like this. Jonah pouts. We'll read here in verse number one, we'll read the entire chapter of of chapter number four. The Bible says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. Now that's an odd reaction given what goes on in chapter three. Chapter 3, Jonah goes into Nineveh, I believe it is verse number 4, he says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He cries, it's a very short sermon, how many of y'all would like if my sermons were that short? But uh, uh, Jonah cries unto the Lord, and uh, uh, he he preaches the message that God has for him. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the Bible says they all repent in sackcloth and ashes. In fact, it becomes so such a movement of God that the king of the city tells everyone. He proclaims a fast. And he says, I want everyone to not eat or drink. In fact, I don't want your livestock to eat or drink. And we'll all cover in sackcloth and ashes and we'll repent because maybe God will change his mind and not do what he said he's going to do through his prophet Jonah. Given all that, verse number 1 seems odd. But this, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee Of the evil. That seems like an odd laundry list of complaints to God. And yet. Verse number 3. Therefore now O Lord take I beseech thee my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord. Listen to the patience. I don't know how you read this. But listen to the patience and long suffering in this verse. Doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, is this really what you want to be angry about? Is this the way you want to handle this situation? Verse number 5. So Jonah went out of the city. And sat on the east side of the city. And there made him a booth. It's a small tabernacle type structure probably constructed of palm leaves, dried palm leaves, and it would have been very small. He would have just sat under it only to receive shade, and the Bible says, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But, Jonah prepared, uh, but but God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd and that it withered. And it came to pass, verse number 8, when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement wind, uh, east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not labored. Neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Verse number 11 is the key verse of our passage that we'll study this morning. And should not I spare Nineveh? That great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. It seems unique, and it is unique, that the end of Jonah has a question mark. There are only two books in the entire Bible that end with a question. Jonah is one, and Nahum is one. Uniquely enough, both of these books involve Nineveh. But it's so strange, it's like we're in the middle of a movie and... And the movie builds up and and is coming to the point where we all uh, are ready to see the triumph. We're ready to find out whether the hero wins or loses. And it doesn't give us the answer. Occasionally I'll annoy my wife. I I think it's the best way of flirting, honestly, is to annoy her. Um, It helps her know that I'm still interested enough in her to pester her and to bug her. I'll do this several ways. One of the ways I do this, like say she's sitting on a couch or we're laying on the couch together. We'll be watching TV. If she gets up to go do anything, I will immediately pull her back down. And for the next five minutes, she will do everything in her power to stand up. But I am going to pull her down. And usually it involves some very slippery moves on her part to actually be able to stand up. Just one of the ways that I pester my wife. Another way that I pester my wife is I like to interrupt her yawns with my finger. (laughs) Oh man, she'll be winding up a good one. She'll be, you know, one of those... You know, you're not sure if she's sneezing. See, don't mistake the sneeze for the the yawn. But she'll be winding up a good one. She'll get to the point where the tongue is trying to escape the mouth and man, I will stick my finger right in the back of her throat. She hates it, and I love it. But probably my favorite way to annoy my wife, and I don't know why I did this one day, but I found it hysterical. I still do it occasionally. See, I sing pretty much all the time. Uh, I'm not a morning person, but when I finally get out of bed, I'm okay to go. I mean, I, I, can, I can go. And, and uh, I, I sing right out of bed. I mean, she's so annoyed. I'll be in the shower and I'll be singing. She just It's no big deal for me. And I'll sing all sorts of stuff. But, but what I did one day and I do occasionally is I'll sing the entire song until the very end. And I'll just stop. You say, well, how, how does that annoy her? Because, for instance... Uh, I serve a risen Savior, He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy, I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how? Oh, she hates it! (laughs) Oh, I love it! And to some degree, that's what I get the feeling when I read Jonah. I come to the very end, as God has had this conversation with His prophet, the prophet's in the wrong here, and by the way, when the choice is between you and God, you're always in the wrong. But the choice here, Jonah has, just has an attitude, he's pouty, to be honest, he's acting very childish. And God gives him this object lesson, very much like we would do in a Sunday school class with a toddler. And God gives him this object lesson of the gourd. And Jonah, why, were, why did you care so much about the gourd? You didn't have any dealing in its development, you didn't nurture it, I did all that. Jonah, uh, I raised up the worm just like I raised up the gourd, and in one night it perished away. Jonah, why are you so angry for the gourd? And then verse 11, he says this. The object lesson was so that God could ask this question. And should I not spare Nineveh? We don't know Jonah's response. We don't ever find out what he does. We don't know if his answer is, "You know what, Lord, you're right." Lord, they deserve the mercy that you're showing them right now. You are so good, and mer- you are so good. You are so merciful, God. I have experienced your mercy, and they experienced it the same way I have. Lord, you're right, and I'm wrong. We don't know if he says that, or we don't know if he says this. No, you shouldn't save them. We don't know. But I think throughout the book, we find different behaviors that help us figure out why Jonah has come to the place where he has been forced to have this question posed to him by God. What are those behaviors this morning? I would say that probably some of us share the same behaviors as well. Notice number one. His behavior and how we answer this question, we answer it first of all with our attitude. Verse number 1, as I mentioned earlier in the chapter, the Bible says, uh, after this, uh, not a revival, but a movement of God that saves this city, they all repent because the king demands it. Everybody universally repents. And the Bible says in verse number 4, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, And he was very angry. So two emotions we find there. We find his displeasure with the way that God moved. And we find anger in the way that God moved in that city. Displeasure and anger. Now, for the life of me, I struggle with this because I pray for a movement of God like this in our church. I pray for a movement like this in our community that God would so come that He would use this church or, to be honest with you, any true preacher in in our area that would stand up and say, repent. And and my prayer for our area is that God would move like this. So I I struggle with why Jonah was displeased and angry. There's two reasons I've come up with though, and I'll share them with you. Number one, it's the foolish preacher reason. You see, Jonah comes in chapter number three and verse number four and says, 40 days and yet Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days. I mean, talk about a countdown, right? 40 days and God's going to destroy your city. Do y'all remember Y2K? Y'all remember when we were all counting down the days until it flipped over from 1999 to 2000? You know who I think came up with that? People who sold water and gasoline. (laughs) And maybe milk. Because the scare, the concern, we did not believe that our computers had the, the two in the system to be able to flip over. Like if you imagine computers have odometers, the way it was explained to me was there's no two. There's only a one, like computers were the uh, uh, product of the Aztec and invi- Mayan uh, Aztecs, right? But, but there's no two. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And man, we were all panicking. Don't you act like you were not. We were building storm shelters. I mean, we, that was prepper, man. We were all prepping back then. Uh, we were getting little radios so we could listen to uh, uh, communication systems because the TVs were going to go down. Everything was going to go down. I mean, you know, I wonder who came up with that idea one day. Some, some board of computer tech guys, and they're just sitting around maybe discussing what the future of the world is going to be, you know, internet and stuff like that. And they say, have you guys ever thought that when it turns to 2000, everything's going to shut down? Because that guy threw the world into panic. That guy should be the most wanted man in America because he made us all freak out for absolutely no reason. That's Jonah. Can you imagine the front page headline on day 41? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Day 41. Puny prophet. This is a lie. The whole thing is a sham. Well, we know it wasn't a sham, right? We know that God did not carry out the execution of the judgment that he said he would do. Why? Because they were repentant and they came to him and said, Lord, don't do this. We're sorry. We're in the wrong here. And God is so merciful that he he took away the judgment that Jonah had pronounced. We know that Jonah was right, but do you think in the back of Jonah's mind, he might have been thinking, man, I'm the one that looks dumb here. God, nobody's blaming you. By the way, according to the Mosaic law, if a prophet proclaimed something from God and it did not come to pass, the Bible says you shouldn't fear that prophet. Jonah's whole authority was robbed from him because God changed his mind. This is the foolish preacher complex. Maybe it was just this, the wicked people. Now, we don't find much in the Bible about how wicked the city of Nineveh was. I think there's a few clues. Verse number 2 of chapter number 1, God says this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Do you not think that the rest of the world was relatively wicked? But there was something significant that God said, Nineveh the worst. Nineveh is an exceedingly wicked city. While every other city is wicked, Nineveh takes the prize. And then you find in chapter number 3, we'll see that in verse number 8, this is the own king of Nineveh's words, his own words. He says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way ...and from the violence that is in their hands. That's his own words. We don't know much about Nineveh as far as biblical. We do know uh, as far as how wicked they were. But Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Uh, And Assyria has traditionally been known as a very, very uh, barbaric and, and hard people... ...especially militarily... They were always trying to conquer. They were always on conquest, and so I think that this people had had become known for their wickedness and their evil ways that they tried to carry out their agendas on other countries. History teaches us that they used amputation as a form of uh, uh, interrogation and torture. Hanging in a British museum this very day, there is a picture that archaeologists uncovered. And on that picture, it shows, uh, uh, it's an Assyrian picture. And on that picture, it shows two young men being skinned alive. And that is their art. Another picture that was discovered in Western Turkey pictures one of the kings of Assyria with a leash in his hand, two leashes in his hand, and both those leashes run to not the nostril rings that have been placed in a conquered Egyptian prince's nostrils. And there that king has those leashes leading that prince around. Assyria, and specifically Nineveh, was an exceedingly wicked place. The only comparison that I can draw to how cruel and wicked they were would probably be seeing a terrorist videotape themselves in a cave with soldiers, American soldiers, on their knees and bags over their head, reading notes that they're going to kill these men on, on, on this video so that people can see That's the only comparison I can make because they were so, so cruel. And this is the people that Jonah's called to. Hey, Jonah, I want you to go cry against those people. Do you think in the back of Jonah's mind he might have said, They don't deserve a chance. They they go through these countries... Killing women and children and innocent people that aren't even armed, they are the the worst of the worst. They don't deserve mercy. What's sad about this is it is not the preacher's job to decide who deserves mercy and who does not. Jonah was a man who was simply his, the only requirement for Jonah was to obey. Our opinions and our agendas don't really matter when it comes to God's will. God's will was that these people would have a chance to repent. And by the way, if there's one underlying tone here, it is that despite how wicked Nineveh was, God still gave them a chance to repent. The Bible says it like this. Luke chapter 15 verse 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, over more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Just three verses after he says, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. When someone repents and comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, when that occurs, all of heaven erupts in grand celebration because God saved another one. There's a party in heaven when somebody accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I can't help but think of when someone announces that they're pregnant. Now we do these gender reveals, right? Right? We make a big up to do about it. I saw JT, I think it might have been Jared, uh, put some coloring in the tailpipe of his diesel pickup so that when he peeled out, blue smoke came out or pink smoke came out. Uh, me and Amy shot a balloon with an arrow to reveal our uh, the, the gender of the baby we're having. And everybody gets on social media, oh man, that's just wonderful. We're so happy you're having a girl. And my question to that is, did you ask the dad if he's happy about having a girl? But... But we get so excited about that, and then sure enough, the invitations go out, and uh, we're invited to the baby shower. And man, we make plans to go to the baby shower. The baby's not even here yet, and we're showering it. And uh, we 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 get all these presents. I mean, you go to the mountaintop, uh, you go in there, and there's a mountain of presents. They're registered at Target and Starbucks and uh, Kohl's and Kato. And, like the baby's gonna be drinking Starbucks. And and uh, we we registered all these places because. The baby's on the way. Oh, man, we're so excited for the birth. And then when when news breaks, Oh, she's going into labor. Oh, her water's broke. They're headed to the hospital. By the way, can we just remove her water's broke from all conversation ever? There's no reason for me to have that picture in my mind. Just say she's ready to have the baby oh it's so exciting oh and then you start making plans oh we got to go up to the hospital we got to see this baby that's a very odd thing because if it's an ugly baby you have to pretend that it's not and and usually every child that i've seen that was not my own was ugly after birth looks like they're related to the cone family not the brian cone family the cone head family and uh we, oh, we're so excited. we got to hold the baby. we got to see the baby. Oh, it's so wonderful. I wonder how we get so worked up with the first birth and the new birth. The best we can muster is, amen, preacher. Oh, what a joy that somebody got saved in children's church today. Oh, thank the Lord. You know what? We're not really all that far in our attitude from where Jonah was. The the Lord begins to move. People begin to get saved. And Jonah can't even muster an amen. In fact, he stands up there and says, yeah, but he probably didn't take. He probably didn't mean it. Yeah, those little kids, they they can't fully comprehend their sin nature and the depths of grace. They can't understand God's sovereignty and all this. I mean, they just don't have any clue. And we're no different than Jonah sitting up on the hill looking at the city waiting for it to be destroyed. What is your attitude when it comes to seeing people saved? Jonah was a bitter man. How about we just get so excited and worked up when somebody finally comes to accept Jesus that we let them know we're happy for them in the decision they've made? You Don't ever get an answer to the question, but you certainly see some behavior traits in Jonah that I think we all are guilty of. And the first one is we answer this question with our attitude. Secondly, we answer the question with our approach. We answer the question with our approach. Notice in verse number 2, Jonah says, And he prayed unto the Lord, and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and a merciful, and and, and slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of evil. Notice, he says this, this is the, KJV way of saying this was not this my saying. You know what he's saying there? I knew this was going to happen. I told you so. Man, the other day, me and dad and mom were out at the ranch. We're trying to unload dad's uh, farm implement that he bought. And the tires looked a little low. And I'll never forget, we get out of the truck and we're all gathering around the trailer. And, uh, and the tires did look low. And my mom goes, hey, guys, do you think we ought to put some air in those tires? And me and Dad, we're having our man conversation, and we're mansplaining to each other. Like, Here's what we've got to do. we got to do this. You got to move. We've got to get the tractor. We've got to pick it up. And for an hour and a half, we tried all sorts of different ways to get this off. We tried picking it up with the tractor. It was just too heavy. We tried rolling it off. The implement was getting caught in the trailer. I mean, we tried all sorts of things to get this thing off. And finally, about an hour and a half in, Dad comes up with a brilliant plan. He says, you know what, Andrew, let's go get the air tank and put some air in the tire. And my mom says, I said that an hour and a half ago. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes you do tell somebody something, and I told you so. It's quite appropriate. This is what Jonah says to God. Jonah, Jonah says to God, I knew the very moment you called me to Nineveh, that when I came, I was going to tell them to repent. Repent because you're so good and you're so merciful and you're so loving and you're so willing to forgive everybody of everything, because you are that kind of God, I knew you were going to forgive them. Is that the kind of spirit that a preacher ought to have? He he says, I knew this was going to happen. And and I want to draw your attention to what he says in chapter 3, verse 4. This is his message, okay? His message was not... Repent and thou canst be saved. Repent and God shall have mercy on you. Notice verse number 4. You think there's not an agenda in this sermon? Everyone open your Bibles. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no invitation for repentance There's no call to repentance. There's no message of hope there. Jonah doesn't give them the B and C point. He just gives them point A, repent. Or he doesn't even really say that. He says, yet 40 days, you're already out of luck. Sometimes we get so focused on the problems in the world, it's hard for us to see the goodness in the world. Sometimes we become so critical of everybody around us, we say, oh man, they're just so wicked, they're so vile, I can't believe they talk like that, act like that, do that, I can't believe that. And then so we, we, we place an emphasis incorrectly on the harshness or the hard things of the gospel. In other words, uh, we come to the point where it says, you're a sinner. You know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we spend a ton of time on that one. And by the way, without conviction, there is no conversion. So the law brings the knowledge for the need of salvation. So that's good. But sometimes I get the idea that we have just said, no, our world's too far gone. I mean, God can't save it or God won't save it. And so we leave out the message that is the overwhelming theme of the gospel, which is... Hope. We're so concerned about communicating the reality of hell that we forget that there is a reality of hope and escape from that place. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean that Jonah's message was this. Yet 40 days and your city will be overthrown. This is what Jonah didn't tell them. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. The Bible says... It is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. The fear of God is so important, but more important than the fear of God is the love and mercy and grace that that fearful God extends to us. And Jonah goes and says, yet 40 days! And he doesn't want to tell them about the good news of the gospel. By the way, did you know that's what the word gospel means? It comes from two old English words. Goss, goss, which is good, and spell, which is a story or news. The word literally means good news. So when we present the gospel to those around us, may we give a message of hope and not one of hell. May we give one of a Christ that forgives instead of a condemnation that is sealed. We've got to understand, Jonah went with a totally wrong approach for this. I want to maybe share with you a hypothetical story. I want to put you right in the middle of the story. Say tomorrow you wake up and there's a unique flower that has bloomed in your backyard. You've never seen this flower. You begin to Google it and you find it's new. You can't find it. You bring over uh, someone who has some knowledge in botany and you try to tell them, you say, I've never seen this type of flower. Have you ever seen this type of flower? And and the person says, you know what, that's completely new to me. I've never seen it. So you call in somebody from A&M because they're all experts, right? You call them in and you say you have any idea what this is? And they say, you know what? I, it looks like nothing I've ever seen. Do you mind if we take one of the petals and we do some tests on it and, 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 and we run some, uh, run some simulations and let's just see what you have here. They take that flower petal to Texas a University. They begin to do the tests on it and come to find out, we're, we're kind of skipping some elements of the story here, but come to find out that petal will cure cancer. God gave it. You didn't do it. You didn't plant the seed. It just happened naturally. And in your backyard is the cure for all cancer. Let me ask you. What do you do with it? I would suspect that not only would you tell people, but you would be excited to tell people. I would suspect that all of us in here in one form or another have been affected by cancer. We have loved ones. We have friends. We have people that we know, people that we work with that have been diagnosed with cancer. Cancer is the worst word you can hear when you go to the doctor. And I just imagine that if this this flower bloomed in your backyard, you might say, hey, how quickly can we see what this is? How quickly can we reproduce it? How quickly can we get this cure to everyone in the world, right? Don't you think that would be your reaction? So why is it when we have the cure for the sickness that ails every man? The Bible does say all have sinned. We are born in sin. The Bible says in sin did my mother conceive me in Psalm 51. We all have a sin nature. The worst problem dealing, uh, facing humanity is not climate control. The worst problem facing humanity is not whether or not a wall will be built at the border. The worst problem humanity has is a sin problem. And I just wonder how we're so excited about the prospect of curing cancer and we could care less about the fact that Christ cured the worst problem we face, which is our sin problem that condemns us to hell. How do we not get more excited about this message? I'll tell you why. Because our approach to the gospel is all wrong. We hoard it instead of share it. We shower ourselves in it, but we won't shower anybody else in it. Our approach to the gospel is 100% wrong, and we are not all that far from where Jonah is sitting on that hillside. We see some behavior traits in Jonah's life. Number one, we see his attitude and that answers the question for us. We see his approach to the message that God had given him and the, the react of, uh, reaction that those people had to God's movement in their life. And then thirdly, here's another uh, thing that indicates the answer to that question is our actions. Jonah does a few things, but I'll point three of them out quickly to you. Verse number five. His attitudes are terrible, but they're internal. But these attitudes and his approach to the situation has now gone from internal to external. It's not only affected his mind, but now it's begun to affect his heart and eventually his feet. And you'll see in verse number five, Jonah is separated from God's work. Notice the Bible says, so Jonah went out of the city. One commentator that I read equated Jonah, the first two chapters of Jonah, to the prodigal son. He's running from God, running away from God's will for his life. And he says that if chapter one is Jonah's prodigal stage, Chapter 4 is Jonah's older brother stage. Because you remember the older brother stands outside and the feast is going on inside and everybody's excited that the younger brother has returned home and the older brother stands outside of the feast with his arms crossed not willing to go in. Now Jonah, after this movement of God has taken place in Nineveh, now Jonah sits on the hillside with his arms crossed. Have you ever seen somebody get so uh, angry or so uh, 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 mad at the, like the effects of a game? They go over on the sideline and say, oh, I'm not going to play. You know what this is? This is the take my ball and go home complex. This is Jonah saying, well, I'll tell you what, God. I don't have to be a part of what you're doing. By the way, that's like the first step in almost every church member's departure from church. I'll just step back a little bit. I'll go sit on the hillside, let other people work. It's so sad that preachers pray for this movement and Jonah has the opportunity to be involved in one and he removes himself from it. He uh, separates from God's work. Number two, he's sulking because God's will was carried out. Verse number eight. Look at this. The Bible says, And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun did beat upon the head of Jonah, and he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Man, do you hear the bitterness and the the sulking there? And the Bible says in verse number 9, God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, For the which thou hast not labored, neither madeest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Look, verse number 7 through verse number 10, Jonah's emotions are on a constant flux. You see, he goes out, he prepares this this little booth for himself to give himself shade. He's sitting up there pouting. I guess he's going to wait all 40 days. I don't know what he's thinking. He's going to wait all 40 days to see if God destroys the city. He's sitting up there like this, And then the Bible says, he's angry, he's mad, he's asking God to kill him. And then God prepares this, imagine a palm tree, this gourd to come over him and give him shade. And Jonah's thankful for the shade. And Jonah finds joy in the shade. I mean, just a few moments ago when the sun was beating down on him, nothing was going right in the world. Man, it's just terrible. Now God brings this gourd. Hey. I can deal with this. And I think it's funny that he doesn't think it's odd that this, this gourd grew overnight. I mean, this. but he's sitting there, yeah, this is good. And then the Bible says God prepares a worm, destroys the gourd. The gourd no longer gives him shade. The Lord sends an east wind plus the sun. By the way, this is in the desert. This is an arid, arid environment. So the, of the sun plus the, the wind, this is just awful. Now Jonah's sitting there, man, I wish I had my gourd back. This is just awful. I can't believe God put me here. Here's a question. Think real hard about it. Who put Jonah where he is? Did God make him leave the city? Did God put him on that hillside waiting for him, waiting to see what would become of the city? No, 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 no. Who put himself there? Jonah. The very moment we step outside of God's will for our life, this is what happens to us too. We view everything in extremes. When things are good, oh man, I can't tell you how great life is. And then when things are a little bad, you wouldn't believe what God's doing to me. This is the partly cloudy with a chance of rain complex. Because even when it's good, there's still a chance that it might get bad. This is, I can't believe. If you hear somebody talk about how bad their life has been. I just wonder how much joy they really have in Christ. Because Paul is able to abound in all things. Paul, whether he's abased or abounding, he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He says, oh, I'm going to find my contentment not in the circumstances around me. I'm going to find it in the fact that God loves me. Boy, what a revelatory thought. That God's love supersedes earthly circumstances. Oh man, what you have here is you have a prophet who separated himself from God's work. Then he begins to sulk because God's will is being carried out. And then thirdly, and this is where we conclude the message, he's scorning because of God's way. Verse number 11, the Bible ends with the question that we've already mentioned several times. The Bible says and should not i spare nineveh i think the question has to call to in jonah's mind the memory of the multiple times jonah has experienced mercy in this book Jonah experienced mercy when God said, Hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh and cry against that great city. And Jonah rises and goes the opposite way. He gets on a a boat, boards the boat, pays the fare thereof, gets out in the ocean, the storm arises. By the way, if I were God, you know what I'd have done the moment he stepped one foot in the wrong direction? Okay, you're done. I have a short fuse, but I would have probably said... Okay. What good is a prophet who won't obey me? What good is a prophet that won't deliver my message? What good is a prophet that cannot do simply what I ask him to do? And God yet gives him mercy, allows him to get to the boat. He gets on the boat. The storm begins to rock, and uh, everything's going crazy. And uh, then the the mariners on the ship they say, "Oh, we gotta pray. We gotta pray." And Jonah says, "Yeah, guys, I don't really." I'm not on a talking basis with God right now. He says, this is my fault. The storms arose for my fault. Just cast me overboard. And and I'll even say this. Jonah experienced God's mercy because of the whale. You say, Brother Andrew, it says it's a fish. The New Testament calls it a whale. Uh, You say, how is that merciful? Well, because it was like a life preserver. Not only that, but God prepared this fish with a gag reflex. That he didn't have to put that in him. And, and you know scientific studies have been done on this. But God specifically prepared this fish. So that Jonah could go into his belly. Live and survive for three days. Although Jonah chapter uh, 2 dictates it's pretty bad to us. But, but, and then the fish spits Jonah out perfectly on land, I'm sure he smelled pretty bad, but he spits him up on land, don't you think there's a little bit of God's mercy in there? I mean, he prepared a well, not a great white. So Jonah experiences mercy, he finally comes to the city, he he does what God has told him to do, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then his attitude in chapter four is that of a pouty toddler. I knew this was going to happen, God. That's why when you even told me about this, that's why I arose and went to Tarshish. Because I didn't want to be a part of this. Sounds like a little pouty toddler, doesn't it? And yet God so patiently and lovingly talks to him. And you know what he's doing? He's coddling him. Like we might try to explain to a toddler, now, just because they have your toy doesn't mean you can punch them in the face. No, we've got to be kind. We've got to share. That's how God is speaking to his man. All this time, Jonah experiences the mercy of God, and God asks him a question that cuts to my heart at least in verse number 11. And should not I spare Nineveh? Jonah, after all I've done for you, after the mercy I've given you, don't you think they deserve a little of that? We don't ever find his answer. But we do know that God is full of mercy. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22. The Bible says, "...it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not, for they are new every morning." Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Psalm chapter 86 verse 5 says, For Thou, O Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon Thee. Amen. We don't know Jonah's answer, but we do know God's willingness to be merciful. I can't give you an exact reason for why God ends this book on a question mark. I can't tell you why it ends at an interrogative instead of a declarative statement. But I have my theory. My theory is because God is not simply posing this question to Jonah. It really does not matter to you and I how Jonah answers the question. It would be good to know, right? But we don't have to know. It shouldn't affect our actions. I think the reason that it ends at a question mark is because the question is actually posed to you. And shall not I save Nineveh? See, God's done everything in the world He can possibly do to save sinners. He's done the most extreme He's performed the most extreme gift of love in all world history by sending His dear Son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. We are the messengers. We have, been, we have received this ministry. We have been given this ministry because we have received mercy. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Our ministry is a direct result because we ourselves have received mercy. And the question that you have to answer this morning, and that I have to answer is, will we, like Jonah, stand in opposition to God's willingness to extend that mercy? Or will we be vessels that carry that mercy to others? Shall I not save Nineveh? Nineveh is outside these walls. Nineveh is every person that does not already know that they are on their way to heaven. You can know that today. And if you do know that today, you're a vessel of God's mercy.